Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council, original and ambiguous grief. Uh, Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio, here on a beautiful sunny day in the Pacific Northwest, and I have a very special guest with me today, Sophia Cottle, hailing from the East Coast. How are you doing, Sophia? I'm doing great, Reese. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm on the East Coast. It is also a beautiful sunny day. We're about due for some of those sunny days. Well, I'm really delighted that we get to connect today, and thanks for being up for having this conversation. Would you give a brief intro to what you do and what's your connection to the counseling world uh, there in the Carolinas? Yeah, I'd be happy to. If I forget anything, just remind me. Um, Yeah, so um, yes, I'm Sophia Cottle. Hi, um, everyone. Hello, Reese. And I'm glad we connected on our listserv. That's very exciting to me. Um, I'm a therapist here in in North Carolina. I have three practices, but at this point now with COVID, um, we're obviously seeing people all over North Carolina. I specialize in um, sex addiction, sex therapy, intimacy issues, all relationship issues, codependency, I also specialize in grief. Um, I'm writing a, a book about grief now. That's a grief empowerment book. It's a it's a um, uplifting book about grief, not not a not a sad book about grief, but it's more about the the ways we can move through through grief and our awareness around grief, how that's actually quite empowering and healing. So um, let's see. Here in North Carolina, I have many cats. I have a son who is 20 years old in college who I love very much and I love to exercise and um, meditate and those kinds of things. So um, that's kind of a little bit about me and I've been practicing for over 20 years and I love I love what I do and I think this pandemic um, has has really, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's sort of really sealed the deal of wow, I really know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And that feels really good. I would agree. Uh, You know, this last year really has been quite revealing in in a lot of ways. And I really am grateful to be in this particular industry, the counseling industry and not in others. Uh, Uniquely, semi-uniquely, the counseling industry has continued and, you know, even thrived over the last year. I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've had to be with people and support them. Uh, I remember it was helpful early on to think of myself as having a a shepherding role. And this isn't exactly how we're taught to relate to clients in counseling school, but I felt like it kind of worked. I've had a pretty stable caseload of people who have wanted to be here semi-long term and, you know, they've been my people. And it's been my task and it still is my task to walk with them through all of this and, you know, make sure nobody dies or emotionally crumbles. Something about thinking about things that way felt really grounding and really wholesome all this time. Um, you know, I'd really love to hear more about your book about grief. Do, do tell me a little bit more about the book you're writing. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about that. And I'm happy to answer 
any questions around that. Um, you know, I've just found that um, that and, if, and the kind of grief that I'm interested in is not like I'm not a grief counselor. So if someone has died or a family member has died, I'm not I'm not your therapist. And so I will refer that out. That's just not something that I've ever been interested in. And there's a lot of great people that that's what they do and they do it well. Um, and so, that, you know, they, they need to go see grief counselors. So um, I'm really a, a psychotherapist, but I do extremely deep work and, and grief is the deepest of work. It's actually the layer of emotional state underneath trauma. So a lot of us therapists are are trained to, you know, treat trauma and, you know, you know actually a lot of therapists don't even do that. But um, I think those of us who are CSATs, we do. Um, we understand that trauma is very real and it's extremely important. But as I've been doing this work for so many years, um, I realized that um, there's actually after trauma has been reprocessed, um, there there's actually grief, like grief is down here, trauma's here, depression, anxiety, addiction, they're all sort of up here. But grief is still going to keep bubbling up if we don't go into the grief. It's going to bubble up and, and not re-trigger the trauma, but it's going to kind of bump up against it and kind of kick it up again. Grief is also where addiction is born. It's where anxiety and depression are actually born in very, very early childhood. Um and so and, and a lot of times that's pre-verbal. And so the the grief work, when I started getting into this and I got into grief first through ambiguous grief, and we can talk more about that. But that's that's the that's the grief that we experience when we lose someone who's still living. Um, and I think probably everyone has experienced that. That's that's like you know divorce or losing a friend or estranged family members or something like that. Um, so that was how I got into grief work. But and so I started doing a lot of intensives around grief, especially with partners of sex addicts, because what we were finding, they were sort of my test subjects. After we had reprocessed trauma, what kept bubbling up was the grief. And the grief is based for that case. It's like it's the awareness of um, the person that they thought they were married to is not that actual person. It's a totally different person. So they're married to a person that's different than who they thought they chose. Also, the life they had been living feels like more of a lie. So it's 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 a different life than they thought they had been living. That's that's all of that ambiguous grief. But where that really took me and I was very surprised by this. I wasn't expecting to find something deeper than that, but there's something called original grief. Incidentally, both of these terms are terms that I've copyrighted and nobody has been studying them or working on them. And, and for me, I think this is just, it's just really important. Um, and it's proven to be important so far to, to people I've, I've worked with and talked with. And original grief is, is the felt and perceived awareness of our earliest emotional woundings. And that's pretty much everybody. Um, so the ambiguous grief really goes down deeper into the original grief. And um, the original grief is, is where everything is born. And sometimes, again, that can be pre-verbal. Um, but that's really part what the book is about. Um, the book is about all these different types of grief that I am interested in. And original grief is kind of the foundational piece where when we can get get down in a very deep place um, to do that original grief 
awareness and healing and reparenting work um, and very small little kid language, that's that's actually quite empowering. It's 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 how we ultimately um, reparent and heal ourselves, you know, from our very earliest selves, you know, to present day. Um, so that's just a little bit about what the book is about. There's so much in that snippet that I, yeah. <laughs> this sounds like a book I would want all of my counseling students and interns to read. Uh, and like you said, especially working with uh, addictions and compulsive behaviors, we do, we work specifically with specific, you and I work specifically with sexual addictions, but I think this is true, is true for any addiction or use disorder. You get a little way into a person's life and story and see pretty clearly that it's not just a behavior thing and it's not just about not doing drugs. There's a lot of feelings in there. Um, I always tell my students that addictions counseling work is basically trauma work with some drugs thrown in. Um, and, you know, speaking about the, the layers, um, I was just I was having this image of having this festering wound in one side with just like layers and layers of bandages covering it. And they're all ble- bloody and gross. And, you know, there's maybe some cosmetics over it. But really, the thing is still the, the wound is still there and, and needing to be healed. Um, and I think the work we're talking about really necessitates going beyond the surface and the behaviors like you said, to look at the original wound. So then this idea of ambiguous grief seems to account for so many situations. It seems to refer to the loss of someone who is still living, uh, like you said. So loss to divorce, broken broken relationships, separation, uh, things like that. Yeah, it could also be Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS. I mean, it can be physical illnesses as well, not just a mental illness. Um you know, but I, I think I think and also but I do think addictions, um, people see that a lot, like not just partners, but it could be parents of of addicts, that kind of thing. Children can see it in their parents as well. Um, but for me, ambiguous grief, um, when I was first introduced to the work of Dr. Pauline Boss, and she actually coined the term ambiguous loss. And she's done a lot of work around that. It's very important. But her work is is primarily about um, missing in action, prisoners of war, um, abductions, missing bodies. Basically, it's like this person is truly missing. We think they're dead, but we're not positive they're dead. We really don't know if did they run away and they didn't come home. I mean, so there's all this like unresolved grief that people just don't know what to do with. And um, but I found that to be intriguing because I immediately thought of partners of sex addicts because that was that was just a big part of my practice at the time. This is, you know, several years back. But it also really hit me because that's the kind of grief that um, that really defines who I am as an adult, as, as ambiguous grief. And it was sort of what I had been searching for personally. And it happened to also fit. Um, with my clients. And so when I'm working with partners and, you know, we're talking about, you know, their addict husbands, and I'm just going to use that male, female, because that's just often what it's like. It's not to say that females are not sex addicts and and men cannot be partners. Absolutely. That's the truth. Um, But this is just most often what I experience anyway. But, you know, the trauma when that was, when that was kind of done and gone, um, this, the thing that kept triggering the partners was, again, it's the awareness of the person that I thought he was different, like wolf in sheep's clothing, like what the heck? Um, so this really resonates with people. And again, it, it was something that allowed me to understand 
why haven't I been able to move on? It's because of this ambiguous grief. Like grief is real and grief is the kind of thing that likely doesn't entirely go away. So we have to learn to to, to dig deep and become more aware of it and identify it. And, and when we can identify exactly what kind of grief we're feeling and why and connect that back to our original grief, that's power. And that's where the healing comes in. That seems like that would be super powerful. Yeah. And speaking about resolving questions, I'm thinking about Dr. Voss's work on ambiguous loss and I mean, I can't imagine that. I mean, I've never been through anything like that or when someone's definitely gone, but you, you don't know if they're dead or not. And when there's no body, it seems like there, there'd be no way to go through a ritual of mourning. Um, later, I want to ask you about grief rituals and uh, things like that. But one other thing I was wondering, especially within the context of addiction, trauma and betrayal, trauma of, of that sort, um, one partner is looking at the other one who is you know, one partner is looking at the other one who is acting out and lied and broken their trust and thinking, holy, bad, bad word. This person is nothing like I thought they were. And in a devastating way, therefore, I am nothing like I thought I was. And this whole narrative I had in my head of this is how my life will be and some version of have happily ever after, like that's gone too. It almost seems like not just the loss of a person, but the loss of a dream, like loss of the future I thought I was going to have. What's your thought on that? Well, I think you're spot on, Reese. It's all of that. I mean, ambiguous loss, ambiguous grief, really. Um, it's it, it's it's all encompassing. So it's not just that person. It's, you know, has my life been a lie? Ha, what did, you know, was anything of what I experienced the past 30 years, you know, authentic? Um, so there's a lot of that, you know, lack of validation around a lot of parts of, of people's lives. Yeah. And you know, um, I mean, that you just hit it spot on. That was good. Oh, thanks. The other thing this is making me think about is attachment, uh, specifically avoidant versus anxious attachment styles. Avoidance is where the person just isn't there. So it's clean and we, we can adapt to that. Uh, but, but the second, the, but the person who is inconsistently there or is sometimes there too much. And, you know, this creates a sense of, I never know what's going to happen. So I just can never relax because sometimes things are good and sometimes they're not. And I just don't know. And I just don't know. And that creates a whole sense of perpetually being unresolved. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of how I, I deal with original grief is, um, you know, you, I mean, you can, you and I can both kind of hear this is very attachment related. I find that talking with clients about attachment is not that helpful. It's it's more of a therapist construct, you know, and and, and we understand it. But um, original grief, the way that I I I move through that is is it's it's really about, and this is what I do in my intensives is um, we dig deep and really really get very clear on um, what did what did you not have, you know, what what was lacking, what was missing, and it's around the areas of safety, comfort, nurturing, and appropriate affection. So obviously we all get a little bit of that, but it's it's really, you know, where original grief gets created, where that where that attachment style gets created is in what we didn't get. So if we got, you know, lots of food thrown at us, you know, whenever, you know, we were sad, um, but never got hugs or told I loved you and, you know, 
were never really supported emotionally, then there's going to be some way that we're going to we're going to show up in our attachment and how we're going to really be able to to show up in relationships and how we're not going to be able to show up in relationships. And so that's really where that original grief um, gets to. But again, where I do it, you know, where I where I was taught to do this work, like how we all were, it's very surface level. Um, but original grief is it's way down here where this is why intensives are important for what I do, because it takes hours to get to this place. We can't just like go there and an app like 50 minute session. It's not going to happen. We've got to like keep drilling it down, drilling it down, drilling it down, drilling it down. And, and me helping someone get to the place of being in in their lived experience of what it felt like when um you know, mommy and daddy didn't ever ask us how we were doing or mommy and daddy, you know, weren't there to care for us. And and they never listened when something was really bothering us. And so then we even take it down deeper than that into the little child's experience. And so original grief is that that work is really done in, in the very small child space with languaging and um, and just the techniques that I use to do that. I can imagine how it would be quite a journey to get there, especially if one is unfamiliar with with going there to those emotional spots and uh, and also if there are really big feelings. I can imagine some other stigmatizing narratives that might say, Arr, you're being oversensitive or something like that. I feel really sad about those narratives, even as you were talking and giving examples like parents not listening and not really asking how you're doing. I mean, this started generating some stuff for me. So I'm feeling like, wow, those narratives are really powerful. Yeah, it is. And so when we kind of start from and it's really interesting because most people will come and, and I, I work with really special. I, lo- I love the people that I've worked with, not just my clients, but I, I love doing these intensives with people I don't even know. And nine times out of 10, unless someone has experienced severe trauma and abuse, like severe, like criminal, everybody walks in and they're like, I had a great childhood. You know, I um, had a very typical childhood. I, I did, you know, regular family and da, da, da. And I look at them and I go, that's great. I said, but if you did, we wouldn't even know each other. And now I'm like, let's, let's get busy. And, you know, when we start from a place of what we didn't get and I help, I help them see, obviously you got some of what you needed or else you wouldn't be alive. So that's great. And this is not about parent bashing. It's really about the understanding of our parents. What I find is our parents did better than what was done for them most of the time, if not all the time. And um, and that should be celebrated and acknowledged. And but what I also find is that our parents can't give us what they themselves did not have to give. And so this is really an understanding of um, it's really generational grief. Um, but we're just sort of dealing with it. We only have control over what we can reparent in the here and now with this person. And so um, it's really just an understanding of nobody's at fault here. But let's just look at it's the messaging um, that the little brain takes in is, is really what we're talking about. So like when a when a child is, is parented, even slightly critically, they can end up internalizing the you're you're oversensitive when really they were never maybe told you're oversensitive, but maybe they were told something else similar. Um, so it's, it's important just to really be able to get to that very deep place of feeling young 
and being able to 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 put language and emotion to these very young places. I like that idea of allowing oneself to feel young or, or allowing the young parts to 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 feel heard. I've been learning some things lately about the internal family systems model. And by that, I mean I've, I've read some books. Uh, they they talk a lot about the the parts of us, especially the younger parts of us, that most often are the ones carrying the burdens of pain, distress, neglect. And we find that these really young parts still exert a whole lot of control and influence over the rest of us. So the so the idea of feeling feeling your younger parts, of feeling with your younger parts, that feels really valuable. It, it is absolutely valuable. Um, I don't do IFS, but I'm I'm aware of that. I, I do schema therapy, and schema therapy is is sort of it's been around a long time. There's there's a ton of research around schema therapy, schema therapy, and um, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families are very similar, um, and they were both created, you know, several decades ago. Um, and, and and they're again they're very similar. So that's a lot about the the different parts, the reparenting, um, and and actually when I do this work, um, I have I have um, everyone do a schema and mode assessment so that they can really see um, our main schemas are going to be directly related to what our original grief ends up being. Yes. Can you say a little bit more about what a schema is in this context? So, sure. So um, when we get triggered, whenever we get triggered and, and there's like a, 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 you know, a large activation or a great disturbance, that's how we know that one of our schemas has been triggered. And, and our schemas are going to be um, something sort of like a, a major theme. Um, so like, I, I'll just use myself as an example. It's always easiest when I just use my abandonment schema. So my abandonment schema is going to be where, you know, and, and when we get, when our schemas get triggered until we learn not to, we kind of react into a maladaptive mode. So it's like my schema is triggered and then I might just go into an angry child mode or a self-soothing mode, which would be addiction. Um, but so schema therapy is about noticing when we get triggered, noticing when our schemas are triggered and then learning, learning how to stay in our healthy adult. Or if we get into a, a maladaptive child mode or another maladaptive mode, um, how to get back to our healthy adult and contented child mode. Um, but, but so schemas are just going to be um, sort of the main theme. And we can have three or four, we can have a lot um, uh, and we all have schemas and modes, so it's not anything that's a bad thing. It's just it's important to know um, what our main schemas are so that we can just again, it's this awareness. And so schema therapy and probably IFS as well um, would fall right in line nicely with this grief work, um, because for both of those therapies, it's real. It's really going to be those early childhood. It's not just early childhood experiences, though, which is kind of what we therapists are taught. You know, traditionally, it's really going much deeper and beyond the experiences into the deep emotion that's not even usually with language. And it's and a lot of us don't even have memory around um, what our original grief is. But um, if we react very strongly to something in today's day then we know that that's somehow connected to our original grief, if that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense, because a lot of the big reactions we're going to have are going to be in reaction to something kind of petty, like 
you turned up the heat too much, or you, know, you forgot to take out the trash, or you looked at me funny. And and again, <laughs> I'm drawn from some of my own personal experiences there. Uh, I tend to be the petty one. But upon any closer reflection, like a fight like that is never about those petty things. It's it's always about something deeper. And like you said, an activated younger part or a schema. As you were talking about the schemas as like these thematic things, I, w- I was thinking of everyone having their own personal Ten Commandments that's been written by the early childhood everything. And it's not all good stuff. Definitely not. So part of what we get to do within this reparenting work is to at least gain an awareness of what we're responding to. And in some cases, bringing in reimagining, re-experiencing, reauthoring of the narrative. Yeah, like schema therapy. I mean, they, they do reparenting pretty specifically. They do a lot of rescripting with with imagery. And then in, in my work, I actually do a lot of reparenting, but I do it differently. So I use um, slow EMDR resourcing plus vivid imagery plus hypnosis happening all at the same, di- all at the same time. And so um, it's... And, and the way that we do the reparenting is, is different with what I'm doing than what schema therapy does. But I, I love schema therapy as well. Um, this is just this is more um, this original grief work is turning out to be more more intensively based. I have done it in sessions with clients that I know well, um, but it is easier to do in an intensive. But this is also. Um, and how it is similar to schema therapy is that this is really ongoing work. And because, um, uh, you know, I think our original grief is always going to get it's always going to get, you know, kind of tapped into is the way I think about it. Like it's always here. It's not go. It's not going to go away. It's just a matter of do we know how to identify it? in a calm way and just sort of be aware, oh, okay, my, my abandonment has just been tapped into. And, you know, my original grief around that actually sounds something like, um, no one has ever loved me enough to stick with me. Like that's what my, that's what my original grief sounds like. That's one of the phrases. So when I feel that way, I know that my reparenting in that moment needs to be you know, for little Sophia, and I, I do my my reparenting that I've already kind of written up for her with the slow EMDR pulsers, and um, so it's a little it's a little different, but it's it's just it's just hitting the brain differently, and that just seems to be that's something that I'm excited about is to learn about neuroscience and like how I can affect the greatest change, you know, the quickest for people. Absolutely. I think learning about neuroscience has been one of my very favorite bonuses to being a counselor. And one of my favorite parts about practicing in addictions medicine has been learning about the brain. And I don't even know very much. And it's already been really life changing. Well, you've come in at a good time because back when I started, we didn't have anything. (laughs) We didn't really know anything. I mean, not a lot. And so um, I'm as excited as you are just because like just reading so many very cool things. And um, it's, it's amazing what we know about the brain now. And it, I mean, we, there's a lot we don't know. But what we do know now is is just it's it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. Oh, wow. There's so many things I want to know. I wonder if you could say a little more about how original original grief would show up in an addiction and recovery context. Yeah, for sure. So original grief, like when I do um, my intensives with with addicts, and I've done it with many addicts, not just sex addicts, and with partners, 
Um, and, and really people don't have to be addicts. I mean, it could be just depression or anxiety even. Um, but with addiction, it's going to show up. Um, it's going to show up lots of different ways. So it could be um, overt abuse. Um, it could be something very obvious how the original grief is going to show up. And and that might sound something like, um, you know, mommy, mommy, why didn't you keep me safe? You know, I mean, it's going to sound something along those lines. Um, but or it, or it's going to show up with even just sort of benign neglect. And, and what I call benign neglect is really, I think, how most people grow up. Nothing horrible is necessarily going on in the family or in the home. Um, but what it basically boils down to is, you know, whoever the caregivers are, whoever the adults are, um, are just not fully equipped and tuned in to the child um, in the ways of comfort, safety, nurturing and healthy and appropriate affection. Um, and that could be around um it could be around interest in the child or it could be around, you know, physical affection or telling someone I love you or, you know, it could be around um, just not not connecting is, is really how I see it a lot. Just really um, in either incapable of attaching or just parents being busy and living their lives and not understanding the appointment, the, the importance of, of connecting with kids. Um, and so that benign neglect is how I see it show up a lot. But the original grief, like when we get down there with the addict and we get to that place, um, it's it's really, I think it's an amazing moment because that's when people say, oh, this is why. This is what I've been thinking my whole life. And, and kind of original grief in that sense is going to it's going to grow into sounding like I'm not good enough as an adult, but where it comes from is very different. And so addicts, addicts tend to understand that their original grief experience is why they needed to self-soothe with an addiction. And so being able to reparent from the source and the foundation um, is, is, has been really transformative for the addicts I've worked with. And I've, I've gotten some of their written feedback and it's just amazing. And they're still doing the reparenting that we've come up with. They're learning how to create new languaging around that. And I even have a lot of people buy the little EMDR like hand pulsers and do it at home um, to just sort of, ha you know, add to that way that they can change the brain instead of doing like slow taps or something, bilateral st stimulation. I was just thinking about these really early uh, attachment things and it's, yeah, it's not always going to be the big things like I was molested or I was beaten, um, but they definitely could be the more subtle things like my parents were just never quite available. Like I never felt important to them. And there is a part of me that's feeling super critical of this and saying like, oh, that's super pampered and privileged. That That's all you had to worry about. But but I think what what you and I can attest to is that like, this is what we see. I mean, maybe it's, you know, air quotes, not that bad, but people still show up in our counseling offices in a lot of pain. So, you know, something must have mattered there. Yeah, totally. And um, I, I think you're right. I mean, this would be something really helpful. Like if I had learned this back when I was in school, this would have been helpful that, you know, trauma and abuse is, is really serious. And yeah, we need to learn about that for sure. 
But the majority of people running around the world and that, that come in my office, I mean, their trauma is, is, is ongoing, long lasting, benign neglect. You know, their parents were just, you know, out of touch and tuned out. And, you know, they, everybody showed up and had dinner together, but nobody was connected. And um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's really important. And, 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 you know, it is important to understand also that, you know, the way the brain, um, it's, it's relative on the brain, whether it's severe trauma or ongoing benign neglect. I mean, the, the brain is still going to be affected. Yes, because everything affects the brain through all of our senses. It's not just an intellectual process, but a very emotional and embodied process. And it all matters. I wonder, so recognizing that this happens, that maybe benign neglect, parents were maybe doing their best, but not making it all the way, which if there's any parents listening, like we said earlier, this isn't parent bashing. You're not a bad parent for doing this. Every parent hurts their kid in some way. Um, But also recognizing that there's a lot of unresolved stuff that's happened. What have you found, Sophia? Uh, How does a person move through it? We talked about how if there's nobody to mourn, it's hard to do ritual or a grief process. So what have you found are some of the things that are helpful for people working to grieve original grief? So this kind of grief, I mean, it's it's different because I don't know that we really get closure. So when there's, you know, when somebody dies, um, there is closure for, for the living because you know, we know that we know that they're gone. We know that they're not coming back. Ambiguous grief we're always kind of going round and round thinking, oh, well, maybe it's going to get better. Maybe he'll come back to me. Maybe we'll get the relationship back together. So that kind of keeps people spinning in, in grief. And with the original grief, um, I think it's the same thing. I don't know that we really um, entirely move through this kind of, of grief. Um, I think it's more that it's the awareness and, and the ability to identify what's grief and, you know, what's depression, what's anxiety, what's trauma, the awareness around, oh, this is really, this is tapping into my original grief. Okay, I know what to do with that. Um, we just sort of, you know, then there's just work around that. And, it, and it's kind of the same repetitive work, which is nice. And, and so far, what I'm finding, you know, with myself and with my clients and the people that I've done the intensives with and I keep up with people like it's, you know, right after and then six weeks later and then three months later. And, um, you know, what people who are committed to doing their reparenting work in the ways that that I teach them to do it, they do start feeling better. But it's also it's really it's that awareness and, and being able to identify like that's that is just really empowering for people to to know definitively, oh, this is because, you know, I know where this feeling is coming from. It's coming from mean my mom really not knowing how to connect with me. That's where this is coming from. This is why I feel like I'm not wanted here in this experience at work or something. And um, so it's just that awareness is, is it really is, has turned out to be helpful because th- just you know, not knowing where that comes from can create all kinds of anxiety and depression and different things like that. And so I just find that the more we can identify that's in the deep grief and in the original grief, I mean, that just sort of, um, it prevents a lot of other 
stuff from kind of getting kicked up. Um, so again, to me, it's, it's that awareness and being able to identify is just really empowering. Yes, it's really amazing how just being aware of the patterns and connections and just being aware of the factors and forces gives you a lot of power over them. I mean, I've been talking through different iterations of this with my clients for years. It shows up in things like mindfulness practices, things that we hopefully already all talk about. But it can be as basic as just asking, hey, how are you breathing? And how does your body feel? And, you know, you just ate this big sandwich. How is your body feeling? And even learning to stop, even learning to stop, that tends to be the threshold. Can you can you say what your body is feeling? Can you put names on your emotions? And then building on that to what you're talking about, when you can say, I know why I'm angry. It wasn't this thing. It was that thing. It wasn't me being offended by you as much as this little part of me feeling threatened in some way. I'm noticing more and more that when people can step back from these things and just notice them, it becomes much more possible to notice them more openly without criticizing those parts and just making space for those feelings to be there. And it seems like, yeah, without even doing very much, just noticing and witnessing, people talk about feeling this space open up and they can say, oh, yeah, I'm not as overwhelmed by this. Yeah, I think that's important, too. Like, you know, feelings just are, you know, they don't have to be bad, even if even if we'd rather not feel it. Um, you know, it's, it's a it's a pretty um, it's a pretty nice gift to when, when we know that feelings just are and feelings are OK. Um, that I think that's really that's a very loving thing that we can give ourselves and other people is just that understanding. I think so. So a last question around this idea of moving through grief uh, related to spirituality. Uh, and I'm interested in this because I know we have a, a shared faith tradition. Um, but coming from uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, how does that inform your perspectives, particularly on how you would address grief or walk with someone through a, a grieving process? Sure. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, I'm Greek Orthodox and I feel like that's a very heavy religion. Um, there's a lot of mysticism, symbolism, um, spirituality. It's, it's a very, very deep, heavy religion. And so I feel like my brain is just kind of, um, you know, primed for deep grief work. And so having, having, deep spiritual conversations with people is very comfortable for me. And even, you know, and that might be, you know, why it, it's comfortable for me to have these, you know, really deep um, conversations around, you know, the smallest parts of people and where these little small, it's, it's really small, quiet messaging is what I, what I think original grief is. And, you know, I feel like, and, you know, religion is, is also small, quiet messaging, you know, cause I don't know about you. I don't have, God doesn't like come knock on my door and he's not like, Hey, Sophia, let's just sit down and, and have a conversation. It's like I've got to like, I wish that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I would know if I'm doing the right thing, but um, you know, you know, spirituality is small, quiet messaging also. So I feel like um, in those ways, um, you know, I feel I feel like there's a connection there. But then also when I do um, ambiguous grief work, there's a lot of grieving what's gone and and what will never be again. And especially with couples, this is true. I do a lot of experiential work around ambiguous grief with couples. And so um, 
I think that that's also helpful. And we, we do a few um, experiential, just like, I don't want to say exercises, but they're, they're just things that we do of like, I've got this little um, box where we're going to put, you know, the, the old relationship and, and then we will go do something with that. And so, yeah, I think that um, I think it's been helpful um, to come from a, a deeply spiritual background that has a lot of tradition around it. I would concur with that too. It's built into our tradition to go really deep into things and to really emphasize the inner space, the inner stillness, the small and quiet messages. You know, for me, as long as I've been practicing this way, I feel like without realizing it or recognizing it, and, and it definitely hasn't happened overnight, but I do feel like I just have a little bit more space a lot of the time. And if I'm being diligent in the practices, I'm not as intimidated by other people's stories or their feelings or really anything that they say. Yeah, I think that I'm sure that's I'm sure that's true. But yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's that's interesting to think about. Um, I, I'll, I'll be interested interested to see your other your other um, podcasts about this how the spirituality piece kind of fits in here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'd love to have more conversations about that sometime as well. Uh, for now, though, thank you so much for bouncing around some thoughts around uh, grief, ambiguous grief, uh, all of these. Uh, do you have any other last thoughts about anything that we've talked about or books or resources or anything like that? Well, um, so far, let's see. I'm, I'm writing the book. I don't know when that's going to be finished. Hopefully sometime I guess this year, I think I'll for sure be done. Um, but um, if anybody's interested in any other resources, I've written a few blog posts um, on my website, which is uh, Bull City Psychotherapy, and that's in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I also do a, a free um, meeting on a website called In the Rooms, and that meeting is called Codependency, Grief and Relationships. And so a lot of people will come up and, you know, we'll talk about grief there, but also it's, you know, a lot of relationship and, and recovery information. I also do grief workshops, but then if people are interested in coming in and doing this, this deep grief work, just to contact me and we can get an intensive scheduled. Usually I can do these intensives with people I don't know in two days and um, and it's pretty um, it's pretty big stuff. It's deep stuff. But people walk away with like big ahas. And it's it's really, really nice. But but I also again, I'm all about being able to empower people to feel better quicker because um, I don't know about you, but I don't want someone to feel better five or 10 years from now. I want someone to feel better like so they can live their life. And, um, and, you know, live the life they want to live. And so that's really what excites me is doing this high speed work. And um, I've got a couple of other intensives that, that are high speed intensives, high, high speed therapy. And so um, that's just kind of where my, my interests are these days. That sounds really great. And yeah, having something tangible and immediate to walk away with would be really encouraging. And I'm sure the five and 10 year benefits are there and, and they're growing, uh, but they're just five and 10 years away. So something immediate would be great. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, Bull City Psychotherapy is where we can find you online. Great. I'll stick that in the notes. 
Otherwise, yes, thank you, Sophia, so much for sharing. And thank you as well to the listener for tracking along with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Reese. And thank you to listeners for being here with us. I really um, have enjoyed this conversation very much. Absolutely. Let's keep the conversation going. love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music